1: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Allison Cossack, sitting in for Julia Chatterley. And here's what you need to know. Trade uncertainty. Investors are digesting what is and isn't in the phase one deal between the U.S. and China. Under pressure, Boeing could slow or completely halt production of the 737 MAX. And a quick reversal. Hallmark Channel says, sorry for dropping ads that featured same-sex couples. This is Monday, and this is First Move. It's the last full trading week of the decade, and investors are feeling very festive. U.S. stocks look set to rise at the open after finishing at record highs last week. Across the Atlantic, there's a strong rally happening there. The, stock, the stock's 600 index, a measure of markets across the region, hit an all-time high earlier today in Britain Prime Minister Boris Johnson's election landslide continues to boost UK assets by offering Brexit clarity but the real driver is the US China deal both countries announcing they had completed phase one on Friday and the US dropped the extra tariffs that were due to kick in on Sunday trade representative Robert Lighthizer said yesterday the deal was totally done but the details are fuzzy we're still trying to find out what's in it which is where we begin our drivers and let's start with christine romans she joins us live now for more on the u.s china trade deal Uh, so walk me through here this is phase one it still needs to go through a legal review it's got to go through a translation process before it's signed so the first question could it still hit roadblocks and if it doesn't hit roadblocks what's in it and what's
0: not in it Well, I can tell you, this has been elusive, hasn't it? I mean, this is 18, 19 months in the making. It was not easy to get. And you're right, the trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, very confident here. He says this is, you know, Friday, in fact, he said, was the best day in trade news in history, (laughs) in the entire world, because of UMCA, USMCA, and this. So what's in it? Well, we know that the U.S. will not put tariffs on $160 billion in in Chinese goods that was supposed to happen this weekend. That's off the table. They'll roll back other. Uh, tariffs here. They're keeping about 25% tariffs on 250 billion dollars of important, you know, um, economically sensitive things that the Chinese are sending to the U.S. In exchange, the U.S. is going to get um, some some farm products bought by the Chinese. It looks like um, 200 billion dollars worth over uh, the next couple of years. And we know that there are some rollback or snapback provisions, meaning that if the Chinese don't live up to their end of the bargain, which has been a big criticism in years past, that the Chinese promise something and never deliver, that Donald Trump. Trump could go ahead and put some tariffs back on. But that brings three kind of questions or three kinds of I mean doses of caution, Allison, I think one, look, this this, this phase one deal doesn't reverse two years of tariff damage uh, in the global trading system. The 25% tariffs do remain on $250 billion worth of, of goods, so there still are tariffs there. And three, that snapback provision really does continue the uncertainty for companies. They would like a little bit more clarity that you're not going to snap back and have tariffs uh, go back on uh, next year. That said, it comes against the backdrop of a Fed that's cut rates three times and in a U.S. economy that's growing at 2%. So all of this is why stocks seem a little bit uh, a little bit confident today.
1: Okay, so if we're going to hash out who are the winners and who are the losers, or in this case, who's the winner who's the loser,
0: which is it? <laughs> I think they both win here. Both countries had to get some clarity here. This does not fix the trade problem doesn't even come close to fixing the trade problem it is as if literally and figuratively figuratively the US and China are speaking two different languages on trade two completely different trading systems and as as Lighthizer said uh, over the weekend when he was talking to reporters uh, this at least tries to find a little sliver of common ground here so that they can continue working forward uh, next year and and work on a on a phase two I will say though Ian Shepherdson, who is an economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics he said it very well this is low-hanging fruit they the two sides managed to agree on low-hanging fruit that benefits both of them but the hard work the hard work still is yet to come I agree with you there uh, with those points Christine Romans thanks so much nice to see you
1: urgent talks are underway after Mexico objected to last minute changes by the US to their trade deal Mexico's negotiator a uh, top negotiator flew to Washington as the future of the NAFTA replacement known as USMCA hangs in the balance Matt Rivers is live for us in Mexico City with the latest, so Matt, um, good to see you. What is it that Mexico has an issue with here, and does this put the U.S. MCA deal in jeopardy?
2: Well, it certainly makes it more complicated, Alison. It was less than a week ago, it was last Tuesday, in fact, here in Mexico City, that all three countries signed on to this newly revised version of the USMCA after changes were made that House Democrats in the United States had lobbied the White House for for the better part of a year. And this looked like a very rare example of bipartisan agreement. You had President Trump and also the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying this is a great deal. Well, what happened here is that on Friday, uh, a bill was sent to the House of Representatives. uh, And in that bill, it specifically calls for what's called labor attaches, essentially inspectors to be based here in Mexico City. As a part of this deal, House Democrats wanted to make sure that new labor laws that were enacted here in Mexico, specifically surrounding uh, making it easier and more effective uh, for workers to unionize here in Mexico City. Well, Democrats wanted to make sure that those rules were being followed. And to do so, they want to place up to five inspectors on the ground here in Mexico City to go around the country and actually make sure that those new laws are being followed. Well, what Mexico City is now saying, what the government is now saying is, hold on. No one told us that. We didn't agree to that. And we think that inspectors on the ground here in Mexico City could be some sort of a violation of our sovereignty. So you heard the Mexican president talk about it this morning in his daily press conference. He said uh, that there will be dialogue with the United States. He doesn't expect this deal to fall apart or anything. But what we do know is that Mexico has serious reservations with this language included by the United States. They're saying that they weren't consulted on it and they didn't agree to it. And don't forget, Allison, this is a three country trade deal. If Mexico decides to walk away. The whole thing falls apart. I don't think we're there yet, but it certainly is more complicated than it seemed just last Friday.
1: Yeah, this measure was supposed to go to the House this week for a vote. Does that look like it's unlikely to happen now?
2: Well, no, I think House Democrats will likely move forward with this. We're hearing that it could happen as early as Thursday, a vote on this. And I think the USMCA would still pass in the U.S. House. It's already been passed here by the Mexican Senate. So it's unclear exactly what Mexico would do should this come to some sort of an impasse. The Mexican Senate already ratified this deal. The U.S. could do so as early as this week. Uh, and I don't think that this hiccup, as you might call it, is going to stop House Democrats from wanting to push this legislation through and give uh, their caucus uh, something to talk about when they go home and meet with their constituents over the Christmas and New Year's break.
1: Yeah, still, it's got a, it's got a chance of possibly falling apart. We will keep our, our eye on it uh, with you. Uh, Matt Rivers, thanks so much from Mexico City. Boeing's challenging 2019 is not over yet. A source tells CNN that the aerospace giant could curb or entirely freeze the production of the 737 Max jet as soon as today after the closing bell. Boeing shares are currently down almost four percent in pre-market trading. Claire Sebastian joins me live now. Uh, you know what Claire, we, we kind of knew this could have been an option. CEO Dennis Mullenberg, he warned in July that Boeing would be forced to consider slowing or even shutting its production of the Max 737 if there were any more delays in winning approval to get this thing in the air again before the fourth quarter. So so now it's come to this,
3: right, Alison? Yeah, they've been uh, they've been trying to avoid this the whole year. This is a really big deal, not only for Boeing but for its entire supply chain. But look, it emerged when uh, Boeing had a meeting with the FAA, the Federal Avi- Aviation Administration, last week, uh, that they came out of that meeting now believing that the plane would not be certified uh, by the FAA this year. That was something they had hoped. Would happen. It now looks like that won't happen. So now we know that the board is meeting. They started meeting uh, yesterday, Sunday, and they're meeting again today, a regularly scheduled meeting. But a source telling CNN they could make an announcement today uh, after the market close on either curbing production even further uh, or pausing it altogether. Now, this is a huge deal. As I said, when Boeing uh, cut production back in April uh, after the grounding of this plane, uh, from 52 planes to 42 planes a month, that not only uh, triggered problems for some of the companies in their supply chain, but it also cut about one to two tenths of a percentage of U.S. GDP in the second quarter, according to JP Morgan. That just shows the scale of this supply chain. Boeing, of course, uh, the largest manufacturing exporter in the United States, so a stoppage could trigger furloughs at Boeing, it could certainly uh, inflate the cost for that company, but it could also uh, trigger real problems for companies in their supply chain. If you look at Spirit Aerosystems, which makes the fuselage for the 737 MAX, that uh, stock is down some 3.4% pre-market, so you can see uh, those those issues are being factored in there by by investors as well. So uh, this is something that could ripple through the supply chain, through the economy, and the longer it drags on, Alison, the more expensive it gets.
1: Absolutely, and we will be waiting for Boeing's announcement sometime after the closing bell today. Claire Sebastian, thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. The U.S. House Judiciary Committee has released its report outlining the case for impeaching President Trump. It lays out the evidence behind the charges of abuse of power and obstruction of justice. Congress will vote on the articles of impeachment by the end of this week. In Britain, a new intake of lawmakers is turning up for work after Boris Johnson's Conservative Party won by a landslide in last week's general election. The f- and as you can see, the FTSE is rallying on expectations um, for what's to come. The new government, uh, in the new government, it's up around 2% today. For more on what comes next, I'm joined by... Full Black, who is live for us in London. Uh, So what is next? I know that uh, Boris Johnson has been hard at work even over the weekend uh, to shuffle his cabinet. What can we expect this week?
4: Yes, yeah, so Alison, there's a cabinet reshuffle being announced today. Not so much a cabinet reshuffle, it's simply uh, filling a couple of jobs in cabinet that we knew were going to be vacant, and we knew that before the election. Important jobs like the Secretary of State for Wales and of Culture as well, but these are not the big offices of state. The cabinet as it was is the cabinet's going to take this government through and, as Boris Johnson would like to say, get Brexit done. The new MPs that make up this Parliament have all travelled to London today. Today Boris Johnson, well later this evening we think he's going to be meeting with the 365 Members of Parliament, the Conservative members of Parliament uh, who will be sitting in this parliamentary term, including, of course, those who really brought it over the line, who really uh, helped Boris Johnson secure his big new majority. Those are MPs elected in parts of the country that have not elected Conservatives for decades. In some cases, they have never done. He's going to be welcoming, congratulating, and no doubt really firing up that new parliamentary intake. It's going to be a room full of very excited politicians uh, this evening. Then, over the next couple of days, it's all- about process and ceremony. The MPs will be sworn in in Parliament. Then Thursday comes the formal state opening by the Queen where she reads the Queen's speech. That's the speech written by the government which details what they hope to achieve Uh, legislatively over the coming parliamentary term Uh, and then Friday Parliament gets down to the business of debating and potentially voting on things as well and at the top of the list from the government's point of view is the EU withdrawal bill that is the bill that initially triggered the election in the first place because Boris Johnson feared that he wouldn't be able to get it through the old Parliament unchanged he no longer has to worry about that of course because he has that whopping big majority of 80 MPs so he is easily on course to secure uh, Brexit by his next deadline of January the 31st. Alice.
1: It's shaping up to be a busy and historic week in the United Kingdom. Phil Black, live for us in London. Thanks. British socialite Tamara Ecclestone reportedly had jewelry worth tens of millions of dollars stolen after thieves broke into her home. British newspaper The Sun says Ecclestone, the daughter of the former Formula One chief, uh, bernie uh, lost items valued at about 67 million dollars still to come on first move the crypto mystery why investors in one exchange want to exhume its founder's body and from virtual reality to the virtual border wall what the creator of oculus did next Back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, and we are on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Stocks are set for a higher open as the U.S. and China announce the bare bones of a deal. And joining me now is David Balin. He's the chief investment officer at Citi Private Bank, who it's great to have you on because you take a look at the big picture as we kind of wind down 2019. What does 2020 look like now that we've got a little of the ambiguity gone with the U.S.-China trade deal, with Brexit, but still we're getting these signs of slowing here in the U.S. We're hearing that retail sales numbers may not have been as good in the early part of November. Um, You know, of course, manufacturing um, is showing a contraction. What can we expect for 2020?
5: So I think we're getting a bit of a head fake right now in terms of the data. When we look at it, we think about consumer demand remaining very strong, not only in United States, but even in Europe and in Asia. And what we've seen is that for the last six months, uh, the manufacturing sector has been underproducing consumer demand very consistently. So what we're expecting as we begin next year is a real pickup in manufacturing to meet consumer demand. And we can see the consumer is very healthy in terms of their savings rates, in terms of the absence of debt, really no what I would call bubbles taking place there. So that's the first step. And then the second is, if that's right, We can expect U.S. earnings per share to be up about 7% next year over this year's relatively modest gains. And if that's true, you can have a reasonable market. Everybody's very focused on the fact the market's up so much. But if you look back over two years, not so much. You know, it's like a 9% plus per annum, you know, on an average basis?
1: Well, the market up so much can also cause a bit of anxiety among investors. I mean, you know, this has kind of been the year of, of signals, you know, the inverted yield curve. And more recently, the black swan, which is talking specifically about the CBOE uh, SKU index. Uh, it's where uh, investors go to bet that the markets go to crash. And it looks like investors are piling into that as protection just in case. Is this, is this a real phenomenon or is this uh, just
5: another, uh, another head fake? Yeah, so the idea of protecting one's portfolio makes a lot of sense to us. You know, ultra high net worth clients create structured notes and structured products that really help them do that, to change the actual um, you know, portfolio construction. But that's really because volatility is so low. It's in other words, insurance is cheap and that's when you should buy it. So that makes sense to me. But in terms of the actual fear, the data that we have to suggest that there's an imminent problem, we just do not see that. You know, where the black swan is going to come from, we don't see that either. We don't have a debt problem, and we certainly don't have an issue in terms of given where rates are, what valuations look like.
1: So are you saying there's no fear on Wall Street? Oh,
5: there there's there, there are concerns. You know, investors have not put money to work during 2019. If you take a look at the actual, you know, flows out of ETFs and out of mutual funds, we've seen almost $200 billion of outflows during the course of the year. So, I agree with you that people are concerned, but they've also been wrong. And that's one of the things why you want to have your portfolio fully invested. And and, and diversified, and especially globally diversified. One of the things we're telling everybody now is that what's happened in the last 10 years, which has been a US outperformance of all markets, is highly unlikely to repeat. When we look at the strategic return estimates for non-US stocks, they're almost twice as high as US stocks. So we need to have our clients more exposed outside of the United States, especially with valuations on a relative basis being high.
1: What about exposure to bonds?
5: So that's a tough call, right? If you're, if you're into, we are very much against both negative yielding and low yielding bonds. So we're doing, we're doing some substitutions, right? So we're looking at specific sectors of the market like real estate related loans and and bank related loans. But we're also advising clients who have long duration bond portfolios to consider buying high dividend, high growth stocks. So dividends, companies that have good earnings growth and dividend growth, which actually are yielding considerably more almost twice what the bond yields are. And we think that that's something they should be putting in portfolios in a pretty considerable degree.
1: Give me your quick predictions for
5: 2020. So I think that 2020 is going to have some surprises once people start focusing on the election. So I I think that 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 will be, you know, three to six months from now, there will be a lot of noise. And then, you know, people will then look at the election possible outcomes and then look at markets in, in that in that light. And the second thing we really have to focus on is the degree to which these trade issues are actually abating. The China trade deal is really not a trade deal. It's a postponement of negotiation. And as a result of that, we have to see what else takes place. Um, you know, the president has actually taken a look at European autos. He's taking a right. look at steel in Argentina. This could Brazil. still go on
1: and on. It's,
5: it, it, no, I think it is likely to go on and on because <laughs> that is part of the news cycle. You know, it's what's happening uh, with trade. Uh, and that's really what's reduced confidence in the industrial sector globally is that. Um, so we'll see that. And, and then the second thing really has to do with energy. Mm-hmm. Energy has been an underproducer in the energy sector, an underperformer all of 2019. Could there be a rebound in that sector? You know, what would that mean for the economy? But otherwise, that's going to be a drag as new technologies take take hold.
1: Okay, David Balin, so great to talk with you. Thanks Thank you for your so time. Thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure. And uh, we will be right back after the opening bell. The death of 30-year-old Gerald Cotton rocked the cryptocurrency world last year. The founder of the crypto exchange, Rodriga CX died while on a trip to India last December. Now, investors who lost money in the collapsed exchange are demanding extraordinary action be taken. Our Paula Monica joins me now. I'm not going to give away what that extraordinary action is, Paul. But I'm going to let you say it because this is like something out of a movie.
6: Exactly. This has all the makings of a very bizarre Hollywood drama. They want The body exhumed to prove that it is, in fact, him, because ever since Cotton did pass away, there has been a lot of conspiracy theories sort of chatter about whether or not he actually did really die, because he holds the only keys for these digital wallets that have all the assets for this particular cryptocurrency tied up into it. So that's about $150 million or so that the investors in Quadriga now cannot get a hold of. And that, again, has led to the conspiracy theories, all just speculation and chatter that maybe he didn't, in fact, die and has absconded with the money.
1: So what are the chances that his body will be exhumed? And what will these investors do if he is exhumed? And it's discovered that, yes, it is him who died. What's the next step?
6: This is all taking part as part of a bankruptcy proceeding in Canada. Whether or not the court decides to exhume the body and then prove that it is him, I think there are issues of whether or not they will be able to definitively prove that because he did die and was buried uh, about a year ago, or at least that's what everyone is obviously saying. So if he is found to not be the body that has been buried, Whether or not the people who have all their money tied up in these Quadriga coins, can they get some of the money back? That remains to be seen. This is all going to play out in the bankruptcy hearings because there is no physical way to unlock these digital wallets to allow these investors to get their funds back.
1: You know, it's amazing in this day and age with all of our technology, how we can't find somebody to hack into that, right? Have they tried that that route?
6: <laughs> no. Well, that is the problem. The reason why this particular cryptocurrency was so secure is because he held the only key to the digital wallet, which made it pretty much impervious. To hackers, so this is a weird sort of case where, you know, a lot of people flock to cryptocurrencies because they are less susceptible to fraud and hacking. But in this case, you have one guy with the only key. He is now dead. People can't get their money back.
1: Oh, this is a movie that will just, I think, keep going on and on. And we're I'm seeing be watching Tom it together. Hanks and
6: Steven Spielberg for some reason. Yes.
1: So yeah, those are those are those are good characters for them. Yes. All right, Paula Monica, thanks so much. And we're going to be back with the opening bell next. move. I'm Allison Kosick, live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell. Stocks look like they're rising at the open after closing at record highs on Friday. It is the last full trading week of 2019. And here are some of the global movers for you. DuPont is up by around three percent after announcing it's creating a consumer goods giant valued at up to $45 billion by merging its food business with international flavors and fragrances. Shares of IFF are down more than four percent. Meantime, Boeing is making its descent down a little after, uh, down a little bit after news leaked that it could halt production of its troubled 737 MAX, something we will learn more about after the closing bell today. The American TV network Hallmark Channel is apologizing for a decision, which it's now reversed, to take a number of ads off the air because they featured same-sex couples. Polo Sandoval joins us live with more Apollo I know you've been on this story uh you know just overnight it's just it's just literally reversed first of all what made Hallmark make the decision to take the ads off the air in the first place and then what what pushed them to make that that reversal so quickly
7: Allison, it really was a remarkable reversal that we saw overnight, that uh, reversal that you mentioned a little while ago. Now, initially, this was uh, late last week when there was a conservative group here in the United States uh, that submitted various complaints that it said it was getting from viewers of the Hallmark Channel, saying that this uh, advertisement that showed a lesbian couple uh, kissing at the altar uh, was not, quote, family friendly. So as a result, uh, Crown Media, the parent company of this channel, said that this uh, controversy was distracting to their goal. So they took down four of the six ads and then eventually Zola's saying, look, if you're not going to run all of our ads then we're going to take them all down or we're going to take them all back. And ultimately, I think that that was certainly a big a a big factor here is the potential threat of losing out on more advertisers and so what we saw uh, overnight was a statement that was released by the CEO of the Hallmark Channel very uh, rather significantly different when you compare it to what we saw yesterday Mike Perry, the CEO of Hallmark writing, we are truly sorry for the hurt and disappointment this has caused across our brand, we will continue to look for ways to be more inclusive and celebrate our differences so there was a threat of more uh, advertisers pulling out, there was also this call for a boycott on Twitter. And then, Allison, when you look at what uh, Hallmark Channel's competition was tweeting, including Netflix taking to Twitter and promoting what they were describing uh, as other titles that they had to offer their audience members, uh, you can see it here. They said uh, they promoted, quote, titles featuring lesbians joyfully uh, existing. And then they also wrote, "It's Christmas. Can we just let people love who they love?" Uh, this is the these are the kind of messages that we're seeing from their competition. So, Allison, as you can imagine, those are three main factors that would certainly not lead to any surprise when it comes to this uh, reversal from Hallmark.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the stunning reversal from Hallmark, saying I'm sorry and being very direct, that really caught my eye. But do you think the damage yeah. has already been done for Hallmark?
7: It's a good question here. I could tell you that Zola, this is again, this website, this wedding planning website that was initially, uh, whose ads were sort of the center of the controversy, did respond to this. And they, they did say that they were relieved, uh, about this reversal. And then they also said that they were be getting in touch with Hallmark about the potential for returning to Hallmark for their advertisement. So there certainly is that indication or that evidence that they are open to uh, purchasing more airtime on Hallmark. So it, it may not be too late for this channel. Uh, as you clearly see in that apology, they are trying to, 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 to make it up to their viewers, especially make it up to their advertisers as well.
1: Okay, Cedens Polo Santoval, thanks so much. And the Chinese government has invited an Arsenal footballer to visit Xinjiang after he criticized China's treatment of the Muslim Uyghur people. Alex Thomas joins us now live with details. So this all started on social media, right?
8: Yes, Alison, uh, Mesut Ozil, who's a very famous footballer playing for Arsenal in England's Premier League and also for the Germany national team, who were world champions as recently as 2014, getting into trouble, not for the first time, involving politics overlapping with his football career after posting on Twitter and Instagram a message saying that Muslim people around the world were not doing enough to speak out at the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims in China both the US State Department and the United Nations estimating that up to 2 million Uyghurs have been detained in China, although the Chinese have always denied that they're treating them at all harshly. And in fact, the Chinese foreign ministry were the ones that came out earlier on Monday to say that Mesut should come to the country and see that he's talking nonsense. They say that he's been fooled by fake news, if you like, in this controversy. Um, It actually led to the Chinese state broadcaster refusing to televise an English Premier League game between Arsenal and the reigning Premier League champions, Manchester City on Sunday. That was pulled from broadcast, although without explanation, as is the way with CCTV. And Arsenal doing their best to distance themselves from those comments from us or releasing a statement in China only, saying it was the player's opinion Uh, Only and not the opinion of the club. All very reminiscent of the row between China and the NBA and the Houston Rockets after the Rockets' general manager, Daryl Morey, back in October, uh, posted a message in support of the protesters in Hong Kong. We know how sensitive... Beijing officials are to anyone questioning the sovereignty of China. And here we are having China and a sporting controversy all rolled up together. Allison,
1: Is Arsenal seen as kowtowing to China? Listen, there are widespread reports about uh, Uyghur, the Uyghur Muslim community, the, the harsh treatment of them. And then you have Arsenal apparently kowtowing to what China wants, obviously because of money. What are you hearing about that?
8: I mean, the Arsenal Football Club have been heavily criticised for trying to distance themselves from Erzul comments because to most impartial Western observers there seems um, certainly no controversy over the fact that Uyghurs are being detained in China. Obviously China continue to deny it. Uh, instead it looks like Arsenal have been pandering to their commercial interests in the country much as the NBA was criticised for doing the same over the Rockets Mori affair although in the end ultimately the NBA took a hard line saying the players are are allowed to uh, say what they want, even if it becomes quite political. Certainly all sports throughout history and teams and clubs have tried to stay uh, apolitical, stay out of politics, if you like, because of the the, the trouble that it can cause. Um, Clearly, Arsenal are not going to get out of this in a hurry. Uh, England's Premier League have been very, very quiet on the matter.
1: Okay, Alex Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. Up next, high tech and even higher security, CNN talks to the man behind the virtual wall at the Mexican border about his journey from founding Oculus to taking on Boeing. Back at 16 years old, Palmer, Palmer Lucky founded Oculus Virtual Reality. At 24, he sold it to Facebook for $2.3 billion. Now 27, Lucky's newest company provides the quote virtual border wall technology that covers the U.S. Mexico border. Lucky spoke to CNN's Julia Chatterley about patriotism, taking on Boeing, and military ethics. She began by asking him about the tech community's position on working for the U.S governments.
9: I think that different companies have had different reactions. I think there was a great talk by Jeff Bezos at the Reagan National Defense right. Forum just a few days ago. I was there and he said that sometimes it's the role of the executive to push back and say, no, we are going to work with the national security community because it's important to secure our country. It's important to see our, secure our values. And we're not going to run away from controversy because There's a lot of problems that are important to work on that are still controversial and that we can't let that be our guiding principle, not as a company, not their company and not as a country either.
10: Patriotism.
9: In a word, yes.
10: Yeah. Talk to me about who else you're working with, because you're actually not just working with the United States government. You've also got uh, contracts with the UK government as well, the, the UK Marines, I believe.
9: Yeah, so we work with the we work with the UK Royal Marines on uh, the security side, and also uh, selling them autonomous drones. You know, we're willing to work with the United States and our strong allies, and there's a lot of reasons that you want. The United States and our allies to be using a lot of the same technology, particularly when it comes to the types of systems we're building. You know, we're building uh, you know, aut- autonomous security towers that tell you everything that's going on for miles around a military base, autonomous drones that are communicating with not just fleets of other drones, but also with humans on the ground that they're collaborating with. And it's good for all of us when. Uh, when when all of our allies are all using the same technology so that our systems can talk to one another, so that we can collaborate without having a lot of these kind of lost-in-translation problems that you have when two countries have totally different technology stacks.
10: Talk to me about um, some of the technology at the U.S.-Mexican border wall as well, because I know you've talked about a virtual wall. We actually don't need to be seeing physical structures being built. Technology can replace that.
9: I, I don't know if technology can replace physical physical barriers. I mean, there's a lot of areas where you'll have one urban area and then another one right on others opposite sides of the border. And in that case, you still do need physical barriers. But for a lot of areas, what you need far more than a physical barrier is the ability to know everything that's going on and then immediately respond to it in an accurate way. So you know the same security towers that we've been putting on military bases, we've also been deploying on the U.S. southern and northern borders uh, so that Border Patrol agents are able to see where all the people are, where all the vehicles are, where all the drones are. And whether they respond to those things or not, they know what's happening. They know what's crossing and they can have a historical record of what's crossed the border in both directions. And that allows them to do their jobs a lot more effectively.
10: You know, to go back to the conversation that we were having, and it's incorporated into this too, there's always an ethics question when we're talking about This kind of technology, weaponry, whether it's artificial intelligence, facial recognition technology. Do do you have to assume as a company that when you're dealing with government contracts that the government always falls on the the right side of this? Or is it okay for for people to question whether they're workers or, or others?
9: Oh, of course, it's okay for people to question it. In fact, when people at technology companies say that they're upset about their companies working on defense technology, I I somewhat sympathize with them. A lot of these people didn't sign up to work on defense technology. It doesn't mean they're anti-defense. It doesn't mean they're anti-military or anti-American. A lot of them just don't personally want to work on that technology. And that's fine. When they come to our company, on the other hand, they know exactly what they're signing up to do. Um, And so I think the ethics are actually a very important piece of this. The United States and our allies have a pretty good track record of using technology in ethical ways. And I think that a lot of these new technologies, we need to think about them the same way, you know, uh if the United States would not have been a leader in nuclear technology, we never would have been able to set the norms for how nuclear weapons would be used, or in, in most cases, not used. Uh, I think the same is true of artificial intelligence and autonomy. If the United States is not the leader in the in, in that space, then we're going to have to cede international norms to countries like Russia and China, which do not share our values. And they want to use autonomy in very different ways. Uh, you know, Russia, for example, does not have any qualms about autonomous weapons that can find, acquire, and fire on human targets without human intervention. In China, there's already multiple companies building armed autonomous drones that are able to do the same. In the United States, we have a very strong doctrine around keeping a human in the loop, uh, making sure that a person always takes responsibility. So you can never just say, ah, it was the machine, it was the robot, you know, it made a decision that we didn't like, and so it's its fault. There's always a person who's supervising that process, and they're the one who has to take responsibility for any decision. Uh, so I, I think the ethics of this are important, and I think that's why we have to make sure that we lead in this space.
10: But to your point, is there a risk that the responsibility and the ethical questions that we ask limits technology development in countries like the United States relative to countries like China and, and Russia? Where's the line?
9: You know, I think it's not up to me to draw. I think our military has done a really good job job of drawing the line. I think in the last few years, it's become very uh, kind of uh, very much in the popular consciousness, this idea around how should the military be using autonomous systems. But they've actually thought about a lot of these problems many years ago. You know, we have cruise missiles that are capable of autonomously striking targets, like surface-to-air missile sites that are emitting certain radar signatures. Uh, We have autonomous uh, gun systems that are doing things like shooting down incoming projectiles that are coming at Navy vessels? And so a lot of these questions have actually already been thought out very, very extensively. Uh, I do think that people should continue to raise concerns. They should make their voice heard. I don't think that the military is going to make the wrong decision just because people are raising their concerns. And I don't think people should be quiet because they're concerned that it might limit the military. I'm I'm pretty confident we're going to come out in the right place in the end.
10: Would you... Ever turned down a, a potential contract from the government because you had issues with what you were being asked to do? I know you've said that actually you're developing technology that then you send. So it's um, sort of coming before the horse in in the case that I'm making. But do you reserve the right to refuse a contract if you simply don't agree with what's being done?
9: Oh, we absolutely do have the right. And actually, that's one of the things that makes our country great relative to China, where they have you know, the military civil fusion strategy, where any technology in the private sector is de facto property of the military as well. If they say they want to take something and use it, then they can just take it from you. And in the United States, we have the right to say we don't want to do a certain contract. Other con- you know, other companies have the right to say that. I will say that nothing we've been asked to do comes even remotely close to that line. And honestly, I don't think that it ever will. I think that the United States is, is, is pretty... Uh, we're pretty aware of what can happen when technology is taken too far. And I, I, based on all the work that I've done with our government partners, I think that they're treating this technology very responsibly.
1: Fantastic discussion. Our thanks to Julia Chatterley. Still to come on First Move, is this fish good to eat? Hmm. A company invents a scanner that uses blockchain technology to break your food down to molecules. Welcome back we are in peak season for indulging ourselves i could certainly vouch for that i've had plenty of junk to eat this just this week and not everything we eat is going to be good for us so how much sugar is in your favorite christmas latte How much salt is in that gravy you're about to pour all over your potatoes? A company called Telspec is trying to help answer those questions. It's created a scanner that uses blockchain technology to offer real-time analysis of the food that's in front of you. The CEO of Telspec is Isabel Hoffman, and she joins me now live. I'm so excited you're here because the timing is terrific. I've been eating like yuck all week um, and, and I'm, I'm often curious what is in our food but you're saying this can tell us all the answers
11: some of the answers <laughs> at least we use uh, artificial intelligence to do the chemical analysis of food
1: okay so what so what is this this is a scanner
11: this is actually um, a sensor, a, sensor? Uh, a spectrometer it reads the light that is reflected from the molecules of a substance. So from that light, we have a unique fingerprint of the substance. And then we use AI to come up with from that fingerprint, the chemical composition of it. Is this device out now? Yes. Okay. What does it retail for?
1: 1899 Okay. So knowing that, I want to see what happens when you have that orange, she's got an orange in her hand and show us how it works.
11: So uh, basically you, you see here, it's warming up and now I'm just going to put it in contact. It's throwing light to it, uh, performing a scan. and she's performing
1: the scan on her iPhone here, it literally says performing a scan and then there's a little circle going around. So it's reading what's literally inside this orange. So and what is see, it telling
11: us? So you see here it's a spectrum. Okay. So that spectrum now is going to be analyzed by our AI machine uh, learning. Um and so is this analysis instant? So it
1: basically she cloud. just yeah. it's 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 instant so it's gonna feed back now and tell us what exactly is inside um the orange. So bricks, nine point nine, that's the sugar. Okay, so there's nine point nine
11: Millig- sugars of m- sugar, milligrams of, of sugar? Bricks, of bricks, Okay. Okay. Tritable acidity is how acid is the orange is. It's actually very little acid. The acidity. Yeah, 0.83. Vitamin C content. So it's uh, 40% in vitamin C. And juice ratio, about uh, 30, 34% of juice ratio. So it gives you an analysis how much juice you're going to get out of here, uh, what vitamin C you have, how sweet it is. And how acid it is. Acidic.
1: How important is it to know those factors of let's just say the orange when we can just sort of go online and Google what are the nutrients
11: in an orange? Right but that's a general orange right that's not this specific orange so you know you go to a store and you buy an orange and sometimes you go squeeze it and there's no juice so this this chemistry this analysis it's sensing this exact orange. Who is buying this device? Well, we have many applications. So for this particular application, supermarkets and distributors and producers.
1: What about critics who say, look, this is a great, great invention, but it can't read um, a product that has a multitude of ingredients, let's say a giant sandwich with
11: bacon and lettuce and tomato and turkey. Uh, This particular sensor is a near infrared sensor. So yes, it's limited to scanning each item that is sort of homogeneous but other sensors can read. I mean, right now we are at this stage. We actually have three sensors in the market very soon this year, coming up 2020, we'll have two more. Um, One of them will be reading milk, human milk, breast milk, because breast milk sometimes is not enough for the baby. It doesn't have enough composition in terms of fat and protein. Um, so we're making specific applications and one day hopefully we'll be able to scan that sandwiches. Can it
1: tell if fish is really wild or farmed yeah. or what's in it?
11: Yeah, that's the, the interesting part is that we got a huge fund from the European Union actually to produce uh, fish, a series of 21 fish species. And we can do actually wild versus farm, fresh versus defrosted as well as the composition of the fish. And sometimes we can differentiate fishes without a DNA test. Real world impacts. I love it, Isabel Hoffman. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Really appreciate it. And finally this hour, Frozen 2 is still red hot at the box office. Disney's Frozen sequel has now earned more than $1 billion in global ticket sales. It opened less than a month ago. It's the sixth Disney film to hit the billion dollar mark just this year. Let's take a quick look of the markets before we head out, uh, if we can see them. I'll turn my head. Looks like we are in the green. Looks like uh, the Dow is up a little less than 1%. We are waiting to hear from Boeing after the bell, waiting to see uh, what Boeing decides to do with the MAX 737 jet. And that's it for the show. Thanks for watching First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Listen to our podcast at CNN.com slash podcast. Connect the World is up after this short break. Thanks for joining us.